The last week saw the passing of Professor Edgar Schein. Professor Schein was a giant in the world of leadership theory and organisational psychology. We were fortunate enough to have Professor Schein and his son Peter join us back in May of 2021 on episode 50 of the podcast. In that episode, we explored their theories around humble leadership, which places people at the centre of our work. The work of Professor Shine has proved foundational for so many leadership thinkers and researchers, as well as enlightened organisations, and in no small part has informed the way we go about our work here at Cut Through Coaching. So today, this episode is respectfully dedicated to the memory and legacy of Professor Edgar Shine. Welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast, brought to you by Cut Through Coaching, helping leaders and their teams to thrive, professionally and personally. Hello and welcome to episode 77 of the Habits of Leadership podcast. My name is Dan Hasler from Cut Through Coaching, and this is the first episode of 2023. I hope the new year has got off to a good start for you, particularly, I guess, against the backdrop of the past two or three years. And I can tell you that the podcast is going to get off to a great start. Our guest today is someone who I've been so excited about getting onto the show. The reason being is I've followed his work for some time and have been an avid listener of his podcast, Finding Mastery. Dr. Michael Gervais is a high-performance psychologist and he works in some of the highest stake environments you can come across, as well as working with people who literally make life and death decisions on a day-to-day basis. He also works with world record holders, Olympians, internationally acclaimed artists and musicians, as well as MVPs from every major sport. He also works with Fortune 500 CEOs and is currently working with Microsoft in order to help empower their 180,000 employees across the world in order to lead a flourishing life. After working with head coach Pete Carroll at the Seattle Seahawks, he found a real clarity on how to sustain a high-performing culture and how to train the mental skills required for world-class performance. He's now on a mission to share this with as many people as possible, and I'm delighted to say that he joins us today to share his thinking with us. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. I'm stoked to be here with you, you know, and so thank you for including me in your community. Oh, well, not at all. As I was mentioning to you um, just before we, we started recording, you know, I've been listening to your podcast for quite some time now, and the environments in which I work, you know, particularly in the sporting world, I'm actually in one today as, as we're recording this. And uh, one of the, the coaching staff asked me, who, you know, who are you chatting to? And I said, oh, Michael Gervais. And he was like, oh, wow, you're, you're kidding. So you, your name is known in Australian sporting circles. <laughs> yeah. And given oh, the um, and given the, the, the size of your following of your Finding Mastery podcast, you know, you're, 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 a, you're a well-known person um, in, in, the, in, in, the, in Australia for sure. So I'm just stoked that you uh, have agreed to come on. I'm really looking forward to jumping into this. Uh, what a fun introduction. Thank you for that. And, you know, the sport world in Australia is legit. And so that means a lot to me because I have a deep respect for the way that um, sport is appreciated and um, cultivated in Australia. So um, big respect for what you guys are doing as a nation. Um, what I thought would be interesting just to kick off, because not everyone who listens to our podcast um, is, one, interested in sport, or two, perhaps aware of um, performance coaching as a, 
as a, as a concept, despite that's kind of what I do, people still sort of skirt around the edges of it. I'm curious to, you know, if, if you ever find yourself chatting at a, a party with someone and they say, oh, Mike, what, what do you do for a living? How, how do you explain it? How do you approach the work that you do? Okay, so I want to, I want to give you a cheeky answer, answer and tell you how I used to answer it a while ago. And I don't answer it like this anymore. But the way I used to answer it was uh, like on a flight and, you know, somebody leans over like, oh, hey, and they want to chit chat. And, uh, you know, eventually comes up, what do you do or how do you spend your time or whatever way that they ask it. And I would say something like, um, you know, used car salesman or life insurance or, you know, <laughs> chartered accountant. No offense against any of those, but, the, you know, usually people go, mm, okay, you know. And so because one, because I, I'm, I don't love talking about what I do, I, I enjoy celebrating the science that I'm attracted to. And so I'll make it really concrete just for this conversation. By trade, I am a sports psychologist. And then my deepest interest is to take the best practices from a science-based perspective that work in high-performing, rugged, high-stress environments, environments of speed and accuracy, and take those best practices with the blend of science and then democratize them, to share them, to populate them across, you know, whether it's an organization or a community of folks that are interested in it or maybe don't quite know that they're interested, but there's something about being better that they're attracted to. So. I think it's a beautiful science um, of psychology with a special spin on how do the best in the world use their mind to be able to solve some of humanity's biggest challenges and drill it all the way down to how do we use our mind to be happy, to flourish, you know? And so that's how I think about it. And I know it's a long answer, but the short, very short answer is, um, you know, sports psychologists working across multiple disciplines. So, yeah, you, you use the elements of sports psychology, but for someone who's in the, the corporate world or as an educator or is a parent or is someone just sitting here and doesn't necessarily even have a title of any <laughs> yet, you, your, your position is that there are things that we can are universally true because people are like people. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think you're right on the money, which is I am – not as interested in sport as you might at first glance imagine. I'm deeply interested in how humans flourish. And so sport is just this very practical, very objective, very time-bound working laboratory that allows us to better understand what the optimal inputs are to get a specific output. And so it is a fantastic working laboratory and I'm far more interested in the human experience. Um, for my company, Finding Mastery, our largest client is not a sporting endeavor. Our largest client, our most significant and meaningful partnership is with Microsoft. And they gave us a charter a handful of years ago to help them, you know, with their 180,000 employees, you know, create a rising tide in the way that people are working from the inside out. Help, help our people understand how to use their mind and unlock their potential by the same skills that you you used and have found to be successful in sporting environments. And this is what I love about it, Dan, is that what works in one environment, if it involves a human, can also work in another environment, whether that is business or it's um, a synagogue, a church, a mosque, or it's at home. So it is completely portable. And I'll tell you why 
I love saying that is because it's going to sound obvious when I say it is we all have a mind. And so we take our mind with us everywhere we go. And if we can learn what best practices are to work with our own mind, then everywhere we go, we literally have upgraded our experience in life. And so it's not limited to the borders of sport by any mm. means. So you, you, there's a sort of a, a little throwaway line in there, which um, I'm attuned to hearing because I hear you use it a lot in your podcast is, you know, working from the inside out. But then there's a follow on to that that you often throw and then working from the outside in. Could you, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. if, if, if I'm interested in bringing out my best, but then also the best of people around me. And again, um, let's be fairly agnostic around the, the domain that we're in. It could be, you know, we'll be anywhere. Um, if I'm interested in that as a core principle of, yeah, you know what, I'm interested in, in, in getting the best out of people, but also showing up at my best as well. Can you just draw out what you mean when you talk about working from the inside out and then the outside in? Sure. So to oversimplify it and then we'll drill down is from the inside out is working on mastering what's in your control, like using your mind as um, one of the greatest levers you have to increase the way that you live, the experience, the way that you experience experience. And I'll, let's just pin that for a moment. And I'll open that up um, robustly. Hopefully the outside in is it's actually a little a little different the way I think about it than you suggested. The outside in is in what ways can I orchestrate my environment to help people be their very best, but it's not necessarily the act of helping them. So the outside in is like creating the right level of friction or decreasing the friction on um, the way that a system works for approval in a business or you know, creating a clean environment on a regular basis. And, you know, I'm thinking about my 14 year old son right now, like helping him understand the value of a clean environment. So that's yeah. the outside. In. Just, just <laughs> yeah. if you can master that, let me know. Cause I also have a 14 year old son. So if, yeah, if, if we can sh share some knowledge in that space, that'd be very helpful. I'll tell you what I, I tell you what my wife and I um, settled on is a, you, it's your room, do whatever you want with it. Uh, no food, <laughs> no dirty uh, dishes. And we just need to make sure that we have a clean or clear path from uh, your door to your bed and from your door to your closet. And so if we have a clear path there and there's no food and kind of mold growing, we're good. And so okay. that's what we settled on. So <laughs> maybe, maybe, we, maybe our bar is pretty low. I don't know, but that's what we settled on. Yeah. So the outside in is more environmental. Inside out is more psychological. Mm. And what we mean by that. Um, to make it even more concrete from the inside out, is I found almost by a forcing function, we created a model. And I'll share that model with you. And I'll tell you how we came to it first is that, you know, I'd be working with teams. Sport is where it started. And they kept saying, oh man, that's great. Oh, that's great too. Oh, that's great. Oh, that'll really help me. That's great. And then one, at one point, and one of the athletes um, who was a leader on the sporting team, says, uh, you know, everything you say is like this beautiful snowflake. He goes, but I need a snowman. Like, can you just, I just need to know how these things hang together. How does it hang together? And I thought, oh my gosh, okay, I need a model and then work from that model. So I cobbled together some, what I would consider the foundational theories for human excellence, for human flourishing, and then created a model around how do we activate those theories? 
So here's a five-factor model that has been useful for me, and maybe it's, it'll be useful for you as well. But the five factors to invest in, there's some part of self-discovery that is required for people to become their best. So self-discovery, and there's a whole way that we can unpack how do we become more aware of who we are? How do we discover um, the essence of who we are? And so I can get concrete there, but that's one. Two is mental skills. So just like we train physical skills or technical skills, we can train mental skills. And mental skills are trained with sets and reps. They're very concrete, they're observable. Things like calm and confidence and deep focus, even self-trust, those types of mental skills, performance imagery, goal setting, you can measure them, the time under tension that you spend. And time under tension is one way to think about um, accelerating our growth arc. The third is developing your psychological framework. And that's a, like a really fancy phrase for how do you interpret events in your life and how do you make sense of how you fit in the world you know, around you? So developing your psychological framework is number three. Number four is best practices on recovery. Because if you're going to get after it and you're going to create the life that you've always wanted to have, it takes, um, high, how I, it takes high output, it takes um, high risk, there's vulnerability, there's stress involved in it. And if we're going to stress at the edges, because that edges is really important, the, the, the adaptations that we're hoping to build to become our very best don't happen in the comfort zone. They happen right at the edges you know, in the uncomfortable spaces. That requires such an exertion that we need to have those recovery best practices to be part of a daily practice. And so recovery is the fourth pillar. And the fifth pillar is mindfulness. Mindfulness is the practice of becoming more aware, period. And it's the golden thread that runs through everything. So those are the five pillars, self-discovery, mental skills, psychological framework, recovery, and mindfulness. And as you were talking there, it's like going, okay, well, there's, um, <laughs> we've got, a, a, you know, roughly an hour <laughs> to, to dig into some of this stuff. And it's like, I, I need five hours minimum, but, um, I'm going to try and do my best to, to pick up on a, a couple of, um, you know, some of the threads that you've, you've, you've laid down there for us. And, and I'm actually probably going to go to the one which might seem least obvious to people listening, um, which is the area of recovery. Cause I, I want to share with you just something I've been doing with people just to get your take on it and I've been asking them how they differentiate between switching off and recharging and you know and and what I've found is unless unless they're in a high performance environment and by that I mean often you know with a coach almost mandating what that looks like very few people can actually differentiate between switching off and recharging that they'll equate binging on Netflix as recharging for example and it might be for some, but also recognizing, you know, the cognitive, you know, actually doing something, a hobby, for example, if you're a professional athlete, having a hobby um, can be quite recharging and age or recovery. Is it, does that land well with you as a concept? Is it something that you've explored not only in, um, you know, in sport, but also in the corporate world where typically, you know, who knows how many hours they're working and, you know, the, the last you know, what, what time are they answering their last email and, and all that kind of stuff? Is recovery as, as pertinent in our world as perhaps it should be? Well, I'll tell you that I, I like what you're doing here. And when 
you know, for the last 25 years, I spent time in world-class environments where the team or the individuals are the best or some of the best in the world. And some of those environments were incredibly consequential where if people made mistakes, you know, people would die. And Mm -hmm. so most pro sport doesn't even come close to what I just described. But the idea of the environments being relatively exacting requires recovery because it is so stressful. Okay, so recovery is part of an everyday conversation in those environments. So it was about eight years ago when I popped my head into big business and from you know the CEO and the C-suite down to be able to understand what they're doing. And as I started observing and learning, I looked at my, my business partners and I looked at my colleagues uh, that were on the team to try to help this organization. We couldn't believe, we could not believe just how bad it was in business. People are professional sitters. Their job is to be critical and creative, to analyze and think deeply, and their bodies are getting torn up by sitting so much. And the stress levels are through the roof because of the monotony. So monotony is one of the key levers for strain. And there's a, it's a, there's a lot of monotony in sitting and thinking and going to meetings and taking notes and trying to solve things. The monotony is pretty high. But I don't mean boring. I just mean the um, doing the same thing over and over again and not having this brilliant relief from spontaneity or excitement can be part of it. So let me not get too far down that path. My main point is the biggest takeaway, the earliest takeaway, is that people in the business rhythm are not recovering well. And so it's no wonder to me that in modern business that uh, disorders of stress, whether they be psychological or physiological, ulcers, backaches, heartaches, you know, whatever it might be, and psychological meaning depression, anxiety, addiction, fatigue, burnout, it's no, it makes perfect sense when you put the lenses on that I'm coming in from, which is for every unit of stress that a human has, we need an equal unit of recovery just to be at baseline. And that's a daily, it's not like a weekly balancing sheet, it's a daily balancing sheet. And so the two levers that you're talking about, which is switching off and recharging, it's a great framing. And then you could list, very practically, you could list, what are all the ways I recharge? Laughing is a way to recharge, right? What are all the ways that I switch off? Napping, maybe a massage, and, 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 right? So um, I, I love what you're doing. And I would add one maybe complexity just as an intellectually stimulating conversation here is that we don't actually ever switch off. Mm. And meaning that, you know, like even getting a massage or let's be even more benign, a warm bath with magnesium salts, right, for a relaxing bath, that also takes energy. Mm. But I love the, I love the coolness of the phrase. Like, how do you switch on? How do you switch off? Like, I use it a lot too. But as like a scientist, everything we do, including meditation, does require some energy. And so it's knowing the right way to stack the equalizer. It's knowing which variables, to your point, you know, on the recovery side, on the recharge side, on the switching off side. It's knowing how to play with that equalizer that I think helps us better recover on a regular basis. 
Yeah, I mean, you, you referenced um, you know the business world there. We we have a lot of listeners in the education world here, and I'm I'm not too sure what the state of uh, teacher well-being is in America, but I do know in Australia it's uh, pretty average. <laughs> you know, it's quite it's quite um, it's, it's a big big issue, and and it that idea of um, being deliberate in switching off we use that phrase and, and recharging is something that can be quite foreign and, and I'm just yeah it's, it's just a bit of a, a learning edge for me at the moment to explore that because I think what you suggested there by being by listing them then perhaps people can be a bit a little more mindful and deliberate in how they go about those things rather than just kind of leaving it to chance you know oh leaving yeah it to chance so that's what's yeah I love what you're bringing up here because the one of the things that we work on from a philosophical position in high-performing environments. And by the way, those environments, we can take best practices from those environments and bring them to any environment we're in, right? Whether it's school or religious or home, whatever, it, we can bring them. They port back to our earlier conversation. And one of those key takeaways is that we are trying to reduce as much chance as we can and increase as much spontaneity. And that's an interesting way to think about things. But one way to decrease chance is to make sure that we're being disciplined with increasing recovery. So we're not, we're not just saying, oh, it's too bad that person got, you know, a soft tissue injury. A non, it's called a non-contact soft, soft tissue injury, which is almost like, it's almost like negligence at some respect because the person is overtrained, under-recovered, and they, they, you know, they damaged themselves because they just didn't have the right repair mechanisms in place. So where I'm going with this is that to your point, just creating the list is incredibly powerful. The second thing is the way that you frame stress. So now we're going upstream. We're not just waiting to say how much stress that I have today and what course correction recovery practices can I put in? That's cool. That's really good. But it's, it's like we're downstream. Okay, we've already spent a lot of energy and we're trying to figure out downstream how to increase recovery. If we go upstream, and there's some research out of Stanford that's very clear, Stanford University, which is the way that you frame stress is a significant contributor to the way that you spend energy. So if you frame stress this way, oh, I come alive. I'm great under stress. Stress makes me. That's my playground. That's the place where we go get better. Hey, we're in it now. This is where it happens. Let's figure this out. Stay in it. All right, we're good. That type of stress makes me framing. When you're in it, you're actually spending less resource. So now you're more economical. You're more, you're, you're not draining your resources because you've got this secondary firefight that you're fighting, which is like, ah, shit, man, this is terrible. Like, isn't this stress? Like, stress is awful. It's so agitating. Let's get out of this thing. Like, when is it ever going to stop? Why me? You know, when do I ever get a break? Like, man, if I just would have had better sleep last night, maybe I could have done this better. And if the, if he or she didn't pile on and, you know, expect me to turn this thing last minute, like, and so that is like a second firefight during the thing, which is incredibly draining. So the framing, this is squarely psychological. The framing of an event is one of the greatest levers we can have about the experience and the, um, maximizing of the way that we experience that event. And then last thing, Dan, I, I needed, I needed psychology as a kid. I needed somebody to teach me how to be confident. 
And matter of fact, not only did they not teach me how to be confident, they taught me wrong, incorrectly. They taught me that if, you know, fake it till you make it. Let me tell you, that's bullshit. That is, that is so dangerous because what, what, so now we're setting up this philosophy. Hey kid, go fake it. Be a faker. And then one day you'll be okay. It is so dangerous. The other thing that I was taught as a kid was um, preparation is how you become confident. Be great at preparation. That's not enough. Nobody taught me how to work with my own self-talk. So I was working my ass off. I was faking it. I was playing a game that like I was fooling myself to try to fool others, to hijack my own self in a weird way. It doesn't work. And so I wish somebody would have sat me down as a sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, 10th grader, 11th grader, 15 times a year and said, hey, we're going to go back to some basics now. Here's how you develop confidence. Okay, good. You got that? Great. We're going to practice it. Here's how you generate a sense of calmness in your life. Okay, we're going we're gonna to practice breathing and we're going to try these 15 different cadences and we're all going to do it together. It's only going to take us six minutes, but we're going to practice breathing at least six minutes a day together so that you know how to breathe effectively to be calm. Okay, we're also going to talk about like how you develop, you know, optimism and there's choices. So you're not born optimistic or pessimistic. There's no wonder why people are, myself included, I was anxious for a big part of my life. I was waking up um, before I was even leaving the house in college, and my hands were shaking. I was at the kitchen sink, or not the kitchen sink, uh, the bathroom sink, brushing my teeth, and my hands were trembling, and my mind was racing. I didn't even know what anxiety was. This is like in 1990. I had no idea what it was, but I knew I was agitated and upset. So you know what I walked around? I walked around irritated. I walked around agitated. And it's not because there's something wrong with me. It's because I didn't have anyone teach me the skills. Mm. And where do you go to get these skills? You got to go to somebody like me, which unfortunately has been labeled a sh like a shrink, you know, and like you got some sort of mental health problem. Go talk to go talk to that person down the hall in a kind of comfy couch in a poorly lit room. And, you know, it's kind of it's OK. We're saying it's not for weak people, but, you know, I don't need that. You need it, though. And so, like, we got a long way to go, brother, on changing the stigma. And teachers are a, can play a massive part in this. Mm. To normalize it, to make it cool, to create the air cover. It's like table stakes. Mm. It's just the basics to be a great human. It's to know how to work with your own mind. And I am flipping so excited that um, some of our great sportsmen across the globe are raising their hand to say, hey, the mind matters. Emotions are at the center of this whole game. And if you don't know how to work with your emotions and you don't know how to work with your thoughts, you're not even close to being in the arena. And so come on, kids. Come on, teachers. Let's get this thing right because we need it. And I got to get off my soapbox now because my, I'm getting blisters on my feet. <laughs> I mean, just to round that out, I would, I would, um, yeah, I'm, a, I'm a former teacher myself. And one of the challenges, I think, and, and I, I want to sort of change gears a little bit and, 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 locate the rest of the conversation in the sports world but i think one of the challenges um in there is you know the environment in which teachers are finding themselves working and i'm not saying the local schools as being the environment i'm saying that the the societal environment with you know the 
the the narrative around falling standards and you know the need to raise outcomes and all that kind of, you know i've never seen a, i've never met a single teacher make a case against raising standards it's just that the way in which it's spoken about and it's all you know top down top heavy and 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 this need to perform almost well not almost does <laughs> come at the expense of the well-being of the people who are asking to be better and 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 that for me is a, a, a it's a it's an incredible irony which um as i said if we if we change gears and look at it in the sporting world you know that obviously sport it's not the highest of stakes environments it's not life and death but it's you know for it's a lot of it's high stakes for a lot of people i want to talk a little bit about the environment that you were um you know in with the seattle seahawks and how you went about creating that environment with pete carroll and when i say you created it that might be too small a statement or too big a statement i'm not entirely sure but if you could share a little bit about in what is to an outsider who doesn't really understand american football um it looks a pretty violent pretty uh, high stakes win at all costs situation can you talk a little bit about the the environment that you set up there and the rationale behind setting up such an environment oh cool yeah that's that's fun so just to level set a bit is that the nfl national football league is comprised of 63 athletes on a roster and they are some of the most phenomenal athletes that you've ever seen. Power, speed, agility, quickness, all of it in, in one athlete. Like it, it is remarkable. And there's about 25 coaches. And then there's another 25 support staff. And that's all for the, let's call it the coaching environment. And then there's a whole other 200 plus people in the organization that are doing, you know, all of the managerial um, and executive uh, roles. So, I, I mean, I wish I could paint the picture better than this, but they are alpha competitors. They are alpha humans in the way that they approach their life. And the thing that we found, Coach Carroll is an extraordinary leader in that he has a deep understanding and a value of psychology. And he wanted to make sure it was part of the ecosystem and not something that was just down the hall experience but literally was woven into the fabric of all of the conversations, of the way that we teach, in the hallways, on the field, both practice and game day, that he has a clear understanding that psychology, so mind, body, and craft are the game that we're in. And I haven't met, just to pull out for just a moment, I haven't met a world-class athlete or coach when I ask them the question, hey, is the mental part of the game important at this level? They all say, yeah, like, yeah. And then you say something like, okay, well, like what percentage of success, you know, would you attribute the mental part of the game? And usually it's something like, well, at this level, everyone's got the physical technical tools. Like at this level, you know, that's given. The separator, it's like 90% in the elite level, you know, is attributed to mental skills. And then the easy follow on from there is like, okay, so what percentage of our day are we going to dick, uh, dedicate to training the mind <laughs> and then you, you then you get then you see the coaches right that are modern coaches and you see the coaches that are like hanging on tradition the modern coaches go yeah how do we do it let's be great because that's the differentiator yes of course we're going to do physical and technical training but how do we get this mental part of the game 
how do we introduce the skill building in a way that is going to fit the culture? That's what Coach Carroll was extraordinary about. So we set um, down a path. It literally was a fantastic working environment with 120-some alpha competitors to see if we could create a relationship-based organization. Okay, you say, what do you mean? <laughs> the extraordinary is too big. It's too multidimensional to think that any one person can create that. We need each other. So that's a foundational thought. We need each other to carry the, this ambition, this beautiful mission that we're on together. So we need each other to achieve that. So at the foundation, we need great relationships. That relationship starts with the relationship the person has with themselves. So we invest in that first. Then once we help them know their philosophy, have a clear vision of the person they want to become and what they want to achieve, there's part one and two to that, and they know their character strengths. What are the strengths that make them special from a psychological, emotional standpoint? So philosophy, vision, and character strengths. Then we say, right, okay, now let's get to know your teammates, vision and philosophy and character strengths. Let's get to know how they get tripped up, what their tripwires are. Let, you know, and let's make sure that we are establishing relationships from, it's almost day one, but it's not quite that early, but we're establishing how we want to run the organization from, as a relationship approach. That is the essence of it, and it keeps coming back to it. And the reason psychology fits so squarely there is because when somebody is anxious, when somebody is overwhelmed or overstressed or under-recovered and overtrained, when they're kind of out of that ideal zone, they're not, they're not thinking about how to be great for another person. They're thinking about how to fix the stress that they're under. So we got to find that sweet spot between stressing at a high level, recovering in an intelligent way, and holding the standard of the way we're promising to show up for each other. So you go from individual to relationship to teammates, and then you get to team. And that is the way that we're structuring it. We literally spend time talking about um, what does it mean to be a great teammate? How are you going to show up to be a great teammate? What can we count on from you to be a great teammate? Bill Russell was a, one of the most winningest NBA athletes ever. NBA for National Basketball Association. And he came to visit us one day and he said, um, you know, I was pretty good. And he was, you know, he was like, only Bill Russell can say something like that because he's such a legend. And he said, so when I would wake up in the morning, I knew that we needed to have a great team for us to be able to win at the highest standard or in the highest way. So when I would wake up in the morning, I would go through each player and coach and support staff on my team. And I would think about how can I be great for fill in the blank, this person. And he would have an idea how he's going to show up to be a great teammate for that person. And then when he walks in the building, he's like, oh, th there's Susie. That's right. So for Susie, I wanted to make sure that I was buoyant or that I was really curious about her family or whatever it is. Imagine that as a practice. You're not just trying to take care of yourself. That's 1980 self-help bullshit. You are, you are working from the inside out so that you can be a great teammate to other people. And that, to me, that to me fires me up because um, I want to be, be on a team 
where I know I'm going to make mistakes. They know I'm going to make mistakes and I'll, I get a chance to be there for them. And they, they're making a promise to be there for me. Now we can go into like high stress environments, know that we don't need to be perfect. This person next to me is pretty badass. You know, that person over there is really special and they made a promise. They're going to take care of me when I, when I make mistakes and I'm going to do the same for them. So let's, let's just go do our very best. And so it's a long narrative to talk about a very special concept, which is to create a relationship-based organization with one aim, to help people become their very best. And that was it. It's a, and it's a, it's a daily, it's a daily commitment to build that yeah. type of culture. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, as I'm listening to you, you, you speak here, it's, you know, I'd, I'd, I'm going to suggest that, that and I've seen this in my own experience, so it's not just a hypothesis. I've I've seen it. That's not necessarily commonplace um, in in many types of organisations. Not least of which, um, you know, the ones you're talking about, which are you know, you're typically very alpha, um, very confrontational when they're training. You know, it's it's one thing to be relationship, but then when we cross the line, I'm gonna, you know, I want to. <laughs> I want to put you in your place, um, and 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 I'm also wanna, and I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm stretching I'm stretching this a little bit here, but what I'm what I'm really curious about is the role that you used this phrase before, you know, self trust, but then trust of others plays in the establishment of such an environment. Because if if we hold it to be true that um, you know most of our mental maps around trust are, are formed early on in life. And again, this is the stretch. A lot of the time, you know, lads or men who are, who find themselves in NFL teams or find themselves in um, NRL teams here, rugby league teams here, they might not have had the most stable of backgrounds as, as young people. They might have done it tough. They might have had some significant, um, I'll use the word drama, um, in their backstory. Have you seen it where it's really hard for some people to engage in such a thing because it is so foreign to what they're used to. And, and, and it takes a lot of time for them to really believe that this is true, <laughs> believe that this is a thing. Okay. You're asking, you're right at the center. I, the way you're asking that question tells me that you understand these environments well. And okay. I think the, 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 the cleanest way to answer this is that we're all craving kind of the same stuff to know that we matter. We've got the same type of basic hopes for our kids and our family that, you know, that they can live a, a, a life of flourishing and happiness and sense of peace and to really know what they're capable of, to know that they have an important part in their community, however large or small that is. And that need to belong is so hardwired in our brain. We are first and foremost social beings masquerading like individual, you know, uh, independent people. We are socially, um, foundationally social above, above everything else. So that's why this need to belong is so critical. And so I say that because many people that come into the environment, um, a sporting environment, they've had to rely on themselves to get better, to be the nail that pops up to be the tall poppy, um, to risk getting, you know, its head lopped off and to be the squeaky wheel, you know, and like they've, they have figured out how to invest in themselves first. And there's a selfishness that gets embedded when you do that. 
there's a narcissist, you know, approach, which is like this deep belief that I'm special. And then I'm going to show you and tell you I'm special. And then I'm going to work to make sure I know and you know that I'm special. And at one level, it's a, it's a bit nauseating, but it's born out of, I'm sorry, and I didn't finish. There's um, an anxiety that comes with um, these high-performing environments. Who, what kind of childhood did you have or did I have or did they have, because I can answer about mine, where there's just enough anxiety, just enough obsession, just enough narcissism, just enough unsettled neurotic, neurotic way of living where you're going to try to outwork every other human on the planet. You're going to try to express your value in the community that you're in by performance, by achievement. And it's, I don't think it's all that healthy. Okay. And so what I do think is healthy is if people had trauma in their life in such a way that they used achievement to know that they're okay to be included. And then you've got a couple coaches that say, Hey, we're family. I first and foremost go, that's dangerous. Okay. That's really dangerous because they are so craving family. We don't, I don't, I should be clear. I do not use the word family, right? Because I don't know your family. Your family might be amazing or it might be really screwed up. That might be the most traumatic place you've ever lived, or it might be wonderful. You don't know my family. So my model of family and your model of family, let's not use family because you know what? You don't fire family. You don't trade contracts on family members. You know, you don't coach family in that way. Um, so, so we say, let's make an agreement that I am going to work my ass off to be my very best so I can help you be your very best. And let's make that commitment to each other while we have the chance. Who knows how long? But my promise to you is I'm going to work when I'm here as hard as I possibly can to be my very best so I can show up for you and I'm not sucking the oxygen out of the environment for my needs only. And that's where we start to end the conversation where people go, is that real? Are these guys real? Are these people real? And then over time, you just kind of wear that thought out. <laughs> They're like, oh, it's consistent. And I think a mark of great leadership is to have clarity, great clarity of the vision that, that is so stimulating for either an individual or a group of individuals. And that clarity is, um, and that vision is shared with other people. And they start to nod their head like, is that what you see? Yeah, I think I can see that too. Oh, you see me like that in it? I think I, man, I see that too. Mm. And then we nod our heads to it. And then we are uncommonly consistent with holding that as the standard in a way that you don't ever lose the regard for the person trying. So you coach the behavior and love the person. Mm. And you can, and when you get that thing right, and I'll put it in this order, support then challenge. So incredible clarity, and then you support them to be the person that they want to become. And maybe you help uplift that a little bit, or maybe they're holding you to a higher standard of what their vision is for yourself. You support them. That's really what love is. And then you also challenge them. And you challenge them in a way that you hold the regard for the person and not just look at the behavior, okay? So you, you love the person and you coach the behavior, but you never let the behavior influence um, the unconditional positive regard that you have for that person. 
And I think there's a beautiful healing aspect. There is an environment that allows people to feel safe enough to go for it. And then what we end up getting is this remarkable culture where people feel safe and trusted and encouraged and challenged to show up to be great for each other. And it almost sounds like I'm like, in my head right now, I'm like, is that, is that really how it was? Yeah, that's how it was. <laughs> and it, it was it was phenomenal. And I just want to share this because I, I should probably said this earlier, is that psychology is invisible. So everything you and I are talking about right now is pretty invisible. And I like to make it as concrete as we possibly can. And that's why we built um, this a shameless plug here for a course that we built. And the shameless plug is because everything I'm saying is like we made it really concrete. And so um, so I want to encourage people like if you're like, oh, I like that, that there's a course that that we spent a ton of time and energy dialing it right in. And so that's one way if you're like, oh, something he said was really good. There's more behind it. <laughs> so you don't have to scribble notes. And the, for those of you that are like, I don't know what this mumbo jumbo is. No problem. <laughs> you know, I love you, too. <laughs> Uh, we'll we'll make sure all the links to um your your podcast and your courses and the finding mastery site is is Thanks, in the man. show notes because many people will be wanting to uh dig a little deeper into this. I just wanted to just hold on that thread of belonging and I'm I'm wondering how that then plays out when so in the in the NRL it's a 30 man squad but there's only 17 that take the field every uh every every week talk, talk to me a little bit about the work that's done to m make sure that people don't feel that their sense of belonging is dependent on their place on the team or their level of performance yeah i think the bench is one of the harder spots on a team you know um so it is the relationship that carries it and um it's being sometimes a cheerleader and sometimes you know like um a mentor in some respects, we're making sure that they have, everybody has what we would call the essential psychological skills to manage stress and pressure. So we're not leaving their response up to chance. Remember, we're trying to reduce chance. Um, and one way to do that is increase skill. And so we're making sure that they know how to filter the information because they've invested in their psychological framework. They're, they've invested in optimism training. They've invested in knowing how to generate passion without uh, passion and purpose, without the environment even supporting them necessarily. Meaning that, like, it's a shame when people only come alive when the external environment is just right. Meaning, oh, you get playtime today. Oh, now, you know, I've, I've got fire and passion. No, no, no. It, there's a different way of living. We call it the passion trap, which is. If I can just do the thing that I love doing, then I live with passion. It's actually the other way around is that, so make it more concrete, like I'm naturally passionate when I play the guitar. Like it's easy for me to feel passion when I'm creating music that way. But that's a trap because then I have to have a guitar in my hand to have passion. <laughs> and so the, the other way around this is like, no, 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 that feeling that naturally comes when you play guitar or whatever it might be for you, can you carry that into the way that you make breakfast, the way that you, you know, sit with somebody and have a conversation. Can you, can you also bring that same sort of buoyancy and intensity and curiosity into, you know, crafting an email or fill in the blanks, whatever it might be. That is a important framing that we're hoping to give everybody on a team 
so that when they leave, they know how to take this passion that they have around sport and pour it into everything else in their life. And so to answer your question super concretely is that everybody on the team, um, we're making sure that they have the right psychological skills to deal with challenges, adversity, stress, pressures uh, in the most eloquent way. And so it is their responsibility to be responsive to the adversity and we're there for them um, in the best way. So I, I hope that answers your question. It, it, it certainly does because what I'm hearing is it's, it's kind of, it's more aligned with who do you want to be rather than what do you want to do? You know, and I think, you know, in high performing environment, in fact, let's be honest, we all probably ascribe a certain amount of what we do into our identity. But I think if we overprivilege that, then if I'm playing well, then I'm doing well. But if I'm not playing, then what am I? Oh, I, I love that you're going there because decoupling what you do from who you are is it's like a rite of passage to, you know, the the game of wisdom or the true high performance because it's so from an early age when you're relatively good at something you start to fuse your identity with what you do and how well you do and it's called identity foreclosure and so one of the more powerful things that we do for folks when even when they get to the pro ranks but certainly towards the end of their career when like if they've kind of missed some of the stuff early on is that we talk about decoupling literally kind of pulling apart who you are from what you do and so if you're riding the bench, you know, taxi squad, riding pine, whatever that kind of phrase is where you're not getting the time that you want, it's just, this is just one phase and it's not all of you. And a matter of fact, this is just something that you do. And so the way you respond to um, not getting your number called is as important as, um, you know, playtime. So it's because the way you respond is always on your control. So we're trying to play a bigger game than minutes and albeit minutes pay bills, minutes, um, you know, afford great luxuries in life. And so there's a value in that too, a deep value. Which brings us a little bit to then, so if, I've, if I'm thinking about that, how do I, you know, because everyone, everyone else, I mean, we're at a pertinent time in the year to talk about this. Everyone's probably thought about goals for this year and everyone's, you know, whether it's, I, I like, um, I heard you talk, uh, recently on one of your podcasts and um, around the you know resolutions yeah intentions are better you know and uh, what I'm interested in I'm going to be quite specific actually I've recently been having conversations with two head coaches both of whom whose teams have essentially um, achieved their goals what I mean by that is you know we want to win the competition and one team has won it two years running another team they've gone back to back four times and and uh, going into the new season, it's like, well, how do you, how, you know, if, if we just sort of close this out, you know, just a, with a little exploration of how do you set goals, which mean something when you've already achieved your goals? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, okay. I mean, I, I bet, you know, the answer, which is like, we need new goals, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. So I think. But that, what about a new type of goal? I'm interested in, I, I've got this phrase, yeah. like an, in, an infinite goal. I want to set a goal that I actually in, intellectually realize. I'm never going to get there. But 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 then is how do I do that in an authentic way? I'll, I'll play with semantics here for just a minute. Is that what we're talking about is vision. So like it and or purpose. So I'll, I'll explain the two. They're almost they're similar in some respects, but very different in another way. So purpose is almost not achievable. And purpose is the bigger 
meaning. It's the why underneath what you do. And um, a goal might be like, I want to make a lot of money and I want to build a platform so that, that I can help kids that didn't have what I have, or I want to help, you know, animals here, there, or brush fire or fill in the blanks. Right. So that is, that's really concrete, but the purpose is like, I want to contribute to the well-being of humans or someone or animals or something. That's, there's not a goal there that is bigger and it's enduring and it's, uh, potentially, um, what you called it, like, how did you call the goal? Like, um, oh, an infinite goal, infinite goal. Yeah. So purpose yeah. is in that respect, an infinite goal. And then vision is, it's like, you don't ever really achieve the vision. It is the waypoint about the person, not waypoint. It's the, um, it's the idea about the person that you're working on becoming. And when you're clear about that, each moment is an infinite opportunity to be that person. And so you can work that for the rest of your life. So vision and purpose might hold what you're looking for. And then wherever you are, if you're in a sporting environment right now, or you're back to back to back to back, you know, for Pete, then it's just another chance to be able to see, do I have with this unique set of four Pete's, do I have what it takes to be the person I want to be, to co-create the culture that I feel is beautiful and durable and dynamic? And is it, am I staying true to my purpose? And I would go up that level. And then you start to build like some key objectives. You start to build some like more daily goals and the goals that we would build. We never had a goal of winning. We would spend the first three weeks talking about, um, the culture, uh, the, the style, you know, that we're going to operate from the aspirational vision. Um, we would operationalize the psychology and how we're going to practice it. We'd spend about three weeks doing the, some of the work that we talked about. And then at the end, Coach Carroll would have this throwaway comment, which would be, you know, if we do everything we just talked about in an uncommon, disciplined way, we just might win the whole damn thing. And that was the only time we talked about winning. So I think as a placeholder to round us out, setting goals that are not 100% under your control I think you've just deleveraged yourself in an incredible way. So one way to leverage yourself to have great leverage is to set goals that are 100% of your control and, and that you can work towards them. And they could be for today or the week or, you know, two weeks or whatever, but they're, you can get your arms around them. And those need to ladder up to this more larger, more aspirational purpose vision um, that we talked about earlier. So, that's, I, I hope that helps. It's clear in my yeah. head, but sometimes I don't have the exact words to, it to get It makes perfect sense mm, to, okay. to me. And I'm sure everyone listening, you, you, I thought you articulated that really, um, really well. And um, what I'd like to do is obviously one of the reasons I put the podcast together is to um, share who I think is <laughs> cool and awesome and doing great stuff with, with people. <laughs> but I'm a, one thing I'm going to do new this year is be quite deliberate in asking our guests who do you, who, you know, a book or a podcast or something that inspires you? Um, what's some, you know, and, and I appreciate in, in a whole, you know, uh, career that you've had, there'll be countless readings and things you've done. But I'm wondering just off the top of your head, like what's one book or, and or podcast that you would say, you know what, if you've got a bit of time on your hands, ch check this out. Oh, cool. Okay. 
So I'm going to give you a bit of a recency bias. Um, uh, so if I can kind of help, help myself there for a minute. Viktor Frankl was a psychologist that survived the concentration camp, survived the Holocaust, and, and wrote about it. And it's a foundational read. If you haven't read his book, Man's Search for Meaning, the first half of that book is incredible. The second half is really for, I think, psychologists. But the first half feels like a necessary read for, for most people. And so I love referencing that. And then one of his mentors, I'm sorry, one of his mentees was Dr. Edith Eager. And she has a book, she has two books, one called The Choice and one called The Gift. And she's 95 years old. I had a conversation with her yesterday. And the insights that she's working from, <laughs> remarkable. Like, she is as free as a human can be. And it's amazing how she's organized. So I think that there's something very powerful on the depth that she has struck a chord with where it counterbalances kind of the surface nature of the performative world that many of us find ourselves anxiously in. And so I think there's a counter rotation there that feels eloquent. Um, as far as other books, let me think. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cheat just a little bit in saying that I'm going to go back to the, the classics. And for me, the classics are the texts that have stood up over time. So they've squared up with history and they're, they're still standing um, in the light. So uh, the Tao Te Ching, you know, the 81 principles from Lao Tzu are remarkable, complicated. I would suggest you read it with somebody else. And uh, because it's, you know, it's one of those tricky reads. Uh, the Bible, the Quran, um, and uh, the Bhagavad Gita are, you know, historically some of the most electric, dynamic books that have ever been written. There's been more love and more wars on the backs of these books. And so I think that those are foundational. On the lighter side, though, you know, not so light, coming from a Holocaust survivor with a choice and a gift, uh, those two books, where am I going with this? Um, let me think one more time. Oh, you know, um, any reading on Beethoven and any reading on Da Vinci. And so Beethoven and Da Vinci, uh, Beethoven was, you know, 1500s, as punk rock as it gets. And um, I did a deep dive on him, and I've got a book coming out in November where I'm going to celebrate his psychology and, and what made him really special. And um, he has something that uh, I think many of us can relate to, which is a deep fear of other people, uh, their opinions. And so I'm going to pull that apart. And then Da Vinci as being a... Um, a person who um, risked it all. He risked everything. Um, so did Magellan, and for different reasons. Magellan was a little money hungry, um, but he was able to mobilize external resources to be able to do something that the world thought he was crazy. So in 1521, he convinced the kings and queens to give him, from his neighboring country, was which he was kicked out of his first country, and the neighboring country was at war with the Portugal and Spain, and he convinced uh, the queen and king to give them their best ships. And he said, I'm going to go prove that the world is round. I know everyone thinks it's flat, and I know you think I'm going to fall off the edge of the earth, 
but I got a hunch. <laughs> and so he did, and he died. He didn't make it back. Um, so Magellan is one of those folks to, to read about, and so is Da Vinci, and he risked it in different ways. So I'll stop there because um, I'm feeling that some of the suggestions are pretty heavy in a world that's already pretty intense and heavy. The, the, the more breadth, I think, of uh, readings and thinking that we take on rather than just going to, as, as you put it before, you know, the bullshit self-help um, section. I think it, it's, it's only going to be for the betterment of anyone listening. So uh, I appreciate that. And um, you, know what, you know what, Dan, before we wrap, like, I'm yeah. so terrified that that's where I'm going to end up. <laughs> With the bullshit <laughs> you know, self-help. Like, yeah. Like the, <laughs> you know, so, oh, God. So um, I don't know. So, yeah. So there we go. Yeah. Thank you for that. I'm not sure how it is categorized on Audible. Um, you know, yeah. compete to create a book. I'll have to, I'll have to double I'll have check, to if, check. It's under, know, yeah. if it's under bullshit self help. But um, <laughs> just to to um, to to help people find more um, info about you and access your courses that you mentioned before, and 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 the the podcast and all the wonderful um, resources you're putting out there. What's the best way people can um, follow on from listening from the, from this podcast to connect further with your work? Perfect. Thank you. Um, Finding Mastery is the name of the podcast, and that is a great way to be connected. From there, you can uh, find our website. You can find, which is findingmastery.net. You can find our email list, you know, or our email uh, that we send out with um, what we think is meaningful information. And um, I would say on social, and the, the two primary social handles are uh, LinkedIn, and it's Michael Gervais, and that's spelled G-E-R-V-A-I-S, and also on Instagram. And those two handles are Michael Gervais and the other Instagram is at Finding Mastery. Okay. And I'll, as I say, I'll put all of those links in the show notes so people can just scroll down and click where they like. Um, I love Michael. your style. Thank you. Thank you for <laughs> no like, just flowing with it and giving me the space to make some stuff up as I go. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's what Thank I you. do every day. People yeah. haven't cottoned on yet, but I yeah. just make stuff up. So, yeah. um, here here but, we uh, go. <laughs> but in all seriousness thank you so much for your time i i've been looking forward to this conversation uh, ever since i reached out to you and, and started getting the, the ball moving on it and um yeah it's lived up to my expectations so thank you so so much uh, i'm grateful and again i i mean it i love your style and approach and um if i can be any service to you and your community please let me know and so thank you for graciously including me if you found that conversation with mike worthwhile then as we always say there is a fair chance that somebody in your network will also find it worthwhile. So please share this podcast as far and as wide as you can. As I mentioned in our chat, I've put all the links to his resources as well as the books he mentioned into the show notes below. And I really would encourage you to go down whatever rabbit hole you find yourself burrowing into as a result of this conversation. As we all say, if you would like to find out more about our work, maybe you'd like to get in touch with us with a question or a potential guest suggestion for the show, then all you need to do is head over to habitsofleadership.com and click on the podcast page there. But until our next episode, thank you so much for tuning in. We really do appreciate it. Take care. Take it easy.